Uh, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific uh, literature and teaching in the classroom. I'm joined here once again for the fifth time with Dr. Garforth. Uh, clearly, I have a great deal of respect for what uh, Dr. Garforth has to say because uh, I keep having her back on the podcast. Uh, just in case our listeners uh, are new today and don't know who she is, I'm going to give her a chance to intro- introduce herself. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth. I am the founder of Garforth Education. I have a PhD in educational psychology and special education. My passion is all about helping teachers, educators, and parents understand things that are gonna help their child or their student excel and really reach their potential in education. Awesome. So today we are going to be diving deep into the topic of executive function. Um, So for all of us out here who don't have a PhD, can you explain to us what that means? Sure. So executive functions are sometimes referred to as executive skills, cognitive skills, or cognitive strategies. Now, these are things that we all have the potential to develop. So we're born with executive functions pre-wired in our brains. And when put in the right situation and having the right support, we develop them. So executive functions allow us to pay attention to the things that matter and ignore the things that don't. So if you're in a busy room where there's a lot of noise, you can just focus on the conversation that you're having. They allow us to think about our thinking or those metacognitive strategies that are another hot topic so that we're able to monitor our thoughts and emotions. And they also allow us to work effectively and efficiently. And that's really important and that you can see in your classroom or in a group setting that you want to be able to use your executive functions, those skills that are going to help you control your attention and actually get the work done. Awesome. So uh, we have certain struggles that are related to executive functions within the literature. What are these? So as I said before, executive functions are pre-wired in my brain and there's really two main periods that they have huge development. It's in the the birth to five years that those beginning skills begin to develop. And that's what the the GP or family doctor would be checking at in a wellness checkup for a child. And then the second phase phase of increased development happens in, in the teenage years. And it's important to note that a neurotypical individual isn't finished really honing in their executive functioning skills until they're about 25 years old. But then we look at the neurodiverse population and in those, there is a lag in the development of some or all of their executive functions. So that can be anywhere from two to five years. So in your classroom, you're very likely to have a neurodiverse individual where they have a specific learning disability, uh, ADHD, autism, they have any form of developmental delay. These students are, you know, two to five years behind their peers in development. So if you're teaching, you know, the intermediate grades, grades five, six, and seven, and you have a neurodiverse child in your class, they could be having executive functions at the skill level of a kindergartner. And this is where you're gonna see their peers get upset because maybe they speak out and they can't control their emotions. Uh, And they're also gonna be the student that's asking you to repeat things. And they're the immature ones, the ones that frustrate you because they're always asking you questions. But it's not like they're doing it on purpose, it's because they don't have the developed skills that they need to pay attention, to focus, to filter what they're gonna say and to know what's appropriate in the situation. Okay, so obviously certain um, uh, classified disorders as to the DSM are uh, sharing a connection with executive function. What disorders uh, do we know of that have this connection to executive function? Well, ADHD is often referred to as an executive functioning disorder. And I I think the 
best way to talk about this would to be first speaking about the three lower level executive functions. Now, these are the skills or the executive functions that first need to develop in order to develop those higher order executive functions. And there are specific diagnoses that have weaknesses in this area. So there are the two foundational ones that begin developing at birth. And those are working memory. And that's kind of like your mental scratch pad that allows you to remember and use information. So if you're you know, remembering a set of instructions or um, doing a math problem and having to carry numbers, those are the skills that you require working memory for, even in conversation or copying things down from the board. If you've written up homework, or the assignment, uh, that's when you're gonna have students using their working memory. There's also inhibitory control. And that's just meaning that it's being able to stop yourself from doing something. So for someone to know, oh, the stove is on, it's hot, so I better not touch it. Or, you know, that marshmallow study, right? They, they give you a marshmallow. They say, okay, if you eat it now, you only get one, but if you wait the five minutes, then you can get two. So it's the ability to keep themselves from doing something, even though they want to, or to keep themselves safe or to keep themselves from saying something. So these are two of the foundational executive functions and they are kind of at the root of all the other ones we see. And the next one that's considered a lower level executive function is that cognitive flexibility. And that's the ability to think about other perspectives. And this is where we see a lot of those behavior issues coming in. So if you have a child or a student that has behavior issues, they're likely struggling with their cognitive flexibility and dealing with other perspectives. So, you know, we see a lot of this with individuals who have autism spectrum disorder, right? Um, ADHD, you have that inhibitory control issue. And then learning disabilities or other um, cognitive disabilities, you'll have that working memory piece. And this is where we go to my other favorite document, the psych ed, right? And these are things that you can learn a little bit about in the psych ed, right? So if you have that poor working memory, that's going to affect the student's executive functioning, right? And then if you have a student with an ADHD diagnosis, they're going to have that poor inhibitory control. And we want to make sure that we're supporting students in ways to help them uh, do their best. So if you know a student has poor working memory, it's going to be hard for them to remember several steps when you give them in the classroom, right? Um, if you have a student with poor inhibitory control, they're the one that is raising up their hands, standing on their seat. They can't wait to give you their answer. And that's because they want to show you that they're smart. But then if you have the kid that struggles with both working memory and inhibitory control, they're the ones that's going to be shouting out the answer because they're so worried that if they don't say it right now, by the time that you call on them, they're not going to know. They're not going to know it. They're, they'll forget. It's on that tip of their tongue, but they, they don't remember what they were thinking. So it really helps to understand these, to get a better understanding of your student, right? For the students that struggle with that cognitive flexibility, they're going to be very, uh, have a very hard time transitioning between classes or subjects, shifting gears thinking about solving a problem in a different way. So this can be challenging in a like a number of different settings. That's really, that's really interesting. The whole time you're talking about that, I was thinking of specific students. Uh, I will say I have, I have ADHD. If anyone who's ever watching these videos, they probably could tell just by watching me. But um, uh, I, I remember like math, I mean, the bane of my existence, specifically for long division, just because there were so many steps and I couldn't pay attention to the teacher long enough to learn all the steps. So I'd get like three steps and then I, but I'd miss the one in the middle or something. And, yeah. uh, 
I would just always get the question wrong. It's funny. And now I'm actually fairly good at math, but it really led me to believe like, oh yeah, I'm just bad at math. But I think what it really was, was I was bad at paying attention. Well, exactly. And that inhibitory control. And so, I mean, the main thing that I want anyone listening to this podcast to get out is to understand the executive functions that they're going to see and the deficits that they're going to see in their classroom, right? And how they can support these. And one of the things that I'm a definite advocate for is creating schema cards. And that's basically you know, a little list that you laminate that a kid can reference or your student can reference when they're not sure what to do next. You know, you have the disorganized student that every time they don't know where their pencil is. So you have a little drawing of their desk and say, this is where we keep our pencils. And this is going to help them to become more organized. You're going to have a kid that doesn't remember what you asked them to do. So give them the questions. You're going to have the kid that really struggles to write down their homework. And you want to make sure that you give them away. So you're taking that challenge away because when you're asking a kid to do this or your student to do the assignment, the thing that you're marking on isn't, can they copy the homework correctly down from the board? Right. I mean, maybe it is. And in that case, then yes, give them marks for that, but don't penalize them for something that you're not judging the rest of the class on. So, you know, a pack of sticky notes. I know teachers spend so much money on their own personal money on school supplies, but getting a thing of post-it notes, you can get a huge pack from the dollar store for not that much money. And you may even have some in your supply room. Get down presentation of their knowledge because they're completing the correct questions, right? Uh, or if they have an iPhone or some sort of assistive technology, just allow them to take a picture of it with their phone. Because yes, it's making it easier for them, but they're still doing the work that you're asking them to do. The other thing that I should mention about executive functions is that it can go to the extreme, right? And this is where we start seeing how executive functioning can impact mental health. Right. So um, and things like obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or not being able to help regulate their emotions and outbursts. So it, it's really important uh, to make sure that you take the time to really get a, a good conceptual understanding and being able to identify how these executive functions impact your life and your students life. And one thing that I've noticed, now this isn't research-based, but areas that I am weak in, I notice in other people, right? So if that's something that I'm weak in, I'm like, oh, they're so bad at that. Um, and so then that can be like a pet peeve. Saying, like, oh, I'm bad at that. Well, you shouldn't be bad at that. You need to get better at that. The other important thing to note is that these executive functioning skills can only develop in the right situation. And you wanna be able to create that situation so that these students have the opportunity to develop these skills because they need to be repeatedly practiced and used in order for them to develop correctly. And I'm sure you're familiar with the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So if you have a very disorganized parent, you're likely to have a very disorganized child because they don't have this modeling from their parent how to be that organized. So you may be the teacher that has to provide that modeling and that support to give them that, dis that organization. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would also assume that there's probably a genetic component to this too, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So what about, how does this look for a different diagnosis? So how would we say support a student differently with one diagnosis versus another? Or are we not going to get into that as a teacher? Um, it, it all depends on whether they have an individualized education plan um, and a psychoeducational evaluation or neuropsychological that a neuropsychological evaluation 
because that's where you're going to get the information. I mean, as a classroom teacher, you don't have the time or the training to assess these things. So you want to be able to get the information from the documents that are available um, from others. And a huge thing that I notice in a lot of the IEPs that I come across is that the goals and objectives or the things that are put in them are not appropriate given the child's executive functioning abilities, right? Um, so by that, I mean, when you're wanting the student to take responsibility for things and they just don't have the capacity to, and it's inappropriate to expect them to, especially at that age in development. So if you have a child in your classroom that has, you know, like severe ADHD and they're bouncing off the walls, getting them to calm down and use these strategies is beyond where they're at. So you can't just take a blanket statement saying that the student's going to be able to self-regulate when they really need that support of co-regulating by help them learn these strategies and cue them for that. And I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing a lot of the responsibility be placed on the student. And when we're talking about students that struggle with the executive functioning development, they're not at a place to do that, right? And another thing to note is that if you're in a high stress situation or upset or something's really difficult, even though you may have strong executive functioning skills, they decrease in that situation. And that's something that I'm sure that you can relate with when you, you know, you're super stressed or frustrated. Or there's just so many things going on. You're not able to be as effective and efficient as you are in a situation where it's not. Yeah. Uh, I kind of just think of, you know, how does everyone act when they're hungry? Everyone's hangry, right? Um, so, so looking at that in a more of like a specific example, yeah. I, I'm sort of thinking the picture of, I often see like IEPs that say things like, when the student's upset, they will take a break. Or <laughs> when the student is feeling anxious, they will go for a walk. Um, but I, I, that's we sort of putting the onus on the student to recognize when they are struggling and need that help. Um, would you rather suggest that the teacher take charge of that? When the teacher notices the student is struggling, the student will be asked to go take a break type thing. Well, it all depends where the student is at. So there are some students that by the time they get to high school, they can re recognize it. And especially kids with anxiety, right? Um, they might be able to recognize it and do it on their own. Um, Dan Siegel talks about flipping your lid, right? And that's basically you're calm and in control and then you can use your effects executive functioning well. But when you're in a, a sense of high alert or aggravation or an anxious state, you're not in the position to, to have to be responsible for that. So if you know a, a student is very upset, uh, dysregulated, that's when you as the teacher or if they have an educational assistant need to take the leading role and tell them and teach them. And I would rather see an IEP list the strategies that you're going to use in that situation and say that it's the teacher's responsibility to intervene when necessary, right? So I would, you know, have the strategies. I would create that schema card that says, you know, in situations when you're anxious or you're upset or whatever, these are the activities that you can do, right? Because when they're in that state of alarm, they're not going to be able to come up with those necessarily on their own, unless it's a routine that they've practiced over and over again. So you can have that little schema card that they can reference. And, you know, at first, you know, you're probably going to have to help support them by going over and say, let's, let's take a look at this card and see what activity you want to do. Because going to the water fountain isn't going to be the fix every time, right? And 
as a kid is more familiar with themselves, they'll be able to decide what the better solution is for them. And then as that relationship develops between you and the student, you might be able to create a more subtle sign, right? Or the student might be able to like if they have a water bottle on their desk and they always keep it in the left-hand corner and they move it to the right-hand corner when they need help, right? Because there is also the embarrassment factor. Yeah, especially in the like intermediate grades, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've noticed that with uh, intermediate students that, you know, so I've had the pleasure of working in all grades from kindergarten to, to high school or to the end of high school. And, you know, high school students are usually at the maturity point where if they have these type of function or problems or issues, most of them can sort of find self coping skills. I know, for example, I have ADHD. I definitely was able to self cope by grade 11 easily. Um, but uh, when we're looking and when we look in the early grades, kids love that teacher attention. They love the teacher coming over. I, I remember there's a kid who had a race car in the classroom when they were upset, they would get to go to the race car and play. And uh, it was a coping mechanism. They love that. But a grade eight doesn't want a teacher coming up to them and saying that, but they might still need that support more than say a high school kid was actually developed those um, self-coping skills. Um, So I think developing a place where you can have some coded ways of talking with them are great. Although I think you also have to have that relationship with a student. It takes time. I'm, I sometimes I, I think like teachers want to have that like coded language on like the first day. You know what I mean? And I, I feel like you, 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 you got to build some buy-in first, just my own two cents. But. So a, a great way that I find um, that you can gain buy-in for the student is talking to the parents because they know their child. And one thing that I know some people, or some teachers get annoyed with, but I know that I do with my clients and their families is creating a little report sheet for the beginning of the year so that the teacher knows what they can use to kind of connect with that student. Because when you have, you know, a class of 30 students, but if you're in the high school, how many students that you have, it's hard to get that one-on-one time to really connect with the students. So if you already know that, you know, they love hockey or um, Harry Potter or whatever, and you have that, that buy-in, you can get it. And that's especially helpful when you have students that have issues with anxiety or ADHD, just getting the buy-in and having them know that you're interested in them. And then again, that's going to help you really get to know how to support them. Uh, and, that's what we want to do. And that's why we're learning about executive functions. And I know we've kind of drifted away from executive functions. Um, but building that rapport so that they have the trust in you, because when you're working on these executive functioning skills with these students, especially in those older grades, it puts them in a very vulnerable position because they have to admit their weaknesses that we as adults struggle with doing and when especially in you know high school grades you're so sensitive to all these things and everything's changing but the key thing to remember is they're in this huge growth period for executive functioning development so there's a lot that we can do to help support them and prepare them and you know one thing that really helps is having more structure to your lessons because if you have a more discovery, um, self-paced model in your classroom, especially from the beginning of the year when you haven't explicitly taught those strategies to the students. Yes, you're going to have those students that have the really good executive functioning skills and they're the great student, but it's those kids that struggle with their executive functions and don't have the skills and don't have the ability to do the work that you're asking them to do. So those are going to be your, you know, your D students and the A students already have these skills in place. So you want to do everything that you can do to help them develop those executive function. And really that takes a lot of explicit teaching and handholding to get them there. And, you know, in high school, it's hard 
because you have so many students and you may only have them for a year here and then in a couple of years you have them again. But it's kind of trying to make that approach as easy as possible and giving them the schema cards or the transitions. Um, I know that it's really great for students that have a neurodiversity for you to take the time at the beginning of the year and saying, look, not every lesson is going to look like this, but these are how my lessons generally look. So if I'm doing, you know, one where it's science, I'm going to give you a lesson. We're going to talk about a concept and then I'm going to ask you to do the questions in the book and that's going to be the homework. So whatever you can do to set them up like that and have little cards ready to give the students that need it and the outline for them to refer to because maybe they have poor working memory and they can't remember what comes next, even though you've done it every class with them since September, right? They can refer to it. And that's just gonna give them the support that they need and the visual cue. I mean, it's the same thing that we do for students that need that visual schedule to help them with the transitions, right? It, it kind of reminds me of, the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation debate for behavioral students, because yes, uh, most of the research shows intrinsic motivation is better, but that's yes. across the board. If we look at research re education specifically around behavioral students, we see extrinsic motivation is better, and it's it's because if a student was intrinsically motivated to begin with, they wouldn't be having trouble with their behavior. The fact exactly. that they're having trouble with their behavior means we need to do something differently than for the average student. Exactly. And, you know, all this stuff interweaves and it's all about trying to untangle everything. And when you get a better understanding of executive functions, first focus on the lower ex level executive functions. So the working memory, the inhibitory control and the cognitive flexibility. Once you have a good understanding of those three executive functions and the different ways that you can support them, then take the time to focus on some of those higher level executive functions. Now, I should mention that in the research, you know, executive functions are still fairly new and there's different ways that you can classify them as well as no full consensus of the best way to talk about them. So personally, I use higher level and lower level executive functions. And the higher level executive functions require development of the lower level executive functions to work. There's also hot and cool executive functions as a way to classify them. So the hot executive functions are the ones that you really need when those emotions are involved and individuals that struggle in those intense moments struggle with those hot executive functions. And those people that are really cool and calm and can handle the situation are stronger in those hot executive functions. Uh, also, when we look at bullying, a lot of the bullies are really good at the hot executive functions and a lot of the victims are not right? And then the cool executive functions are more those cognitive skills that we use to solve the problems and when emotion's not involved. So those are, you know, the kids that are good in the sciences and maths, the reading, and they just have the strategy to go through it. But then when the emotion comes in, that's when they struggle. So ideally, you want someone to be you know, well-developed in their hot and their cool executive functions, have a good strong foundation of those lower level executive functions because they're going to help with the higher level executive functions. And I know that's a lot of concepts and a lot of words um, that might get you lost, but really if you focus on understanding that working memory has to do with what the individual is able to hold in their memory while they're using it. There's usually like a 30 second refresh 
Um, and it's a matter of having that inhibitory control, which is helping you decide what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. Like this, inhibitory control is allowing you to focus on the conversation where some see some students with the noise counseling headphones. They even have um, directional noise counseling headphones that cancel the noise in the area that you're not looking. So if you're looking forward at the teacher, that's going to be the noise that's focused on and the background noise of the students behind you is not going to be there. It's going to be the kid that needs to put on those noise cancelling headphones in the classroom so they can do their work because they cannot focus on what's going on. And then together, those help build the cognitive flexibility. So you need your working memory to consider the different options in a situation. You need the inhibitory control to stop yourself from your first response. So when you tell a student or someone to stop and think about what they're gonna say before they say it, you're using all three of those skills, right? You're getting them to hold what they wanna say in their working memory. You're asking them to use their inhibitory control to not say something even though they really want to. And you're using their cognitive flexibility to think about it and think about the different opinions that other people might have for what they're planning on saying. So whether you realize it or not, these are things that we're using on a daily, everyday basis. And another thing that I should mention about executive functions is yes, they're typically developed by about age 25 and in neurotypical and in the 30s, early 30s for the neurodiverse, but they're skills that we can still focus on on Bill. That's just the biggest range of development. And so you can teach an old dog new tricks. You can work on things. One thing to highlight though, is that working memory, there's only so much you can do with it. You kind of have what you have, you can use skills to support it, but you're not gonna drastically improve an individual's working memory by doing something like luminosity or these different brain memory games. Hmm. That, that's interesting to me. I've, I've always been the belief that something can always be improved, but uh, I'm sure that there are rational limits to how much improvement or how the rate of improvement, I'm sure is the hardest part. Exactly. So you, you can, you can improve working memory a little bit, but you're not going to get a student that has very poor working memory that can only remember three or four words at a time to then be able to remember 20. Right. Uh, and, and the best way to help support a student who struggles with working memory is to build fluency right? Um, one of the examples that I like to use when I'm talking about reading and working memory is how much effort it takes for a student who's struggling with reading to read a word. So if they see a word like red, they need to be able to say, okay, R makes the er sound, E makes the eh sound, D makes the d sound, red. So for a student that isn't fluent in their letter sound correspondences and their letter identification, it's gonna be very taxing on their working memory because it takes them a while to recognize that it's the letter R and the sound that it corresponds with, right? So the better fluency that we can build. So there's that automatic retrieval, they see it, they say it, right? that's gonna help support them in their working memory. And then when we look at students who struggle with things like math facts or reading, just trying to do the calculation or sound out the word is very taxing on their working memory. So they don't have the capacity to consider the next step. So a, a kid who's reading, um, a passage that is very hard for them and they're having to decode every word, they don't have the capacity in their working memory to remember the whole sentence that they've just read because they've been focusing so much on it, just figuring out what the word said, right? That's really interesting. Um, for a student that 
struggles with mathematics doing you know a simple calculation like seven plus six equals 13 well the amount of working memory that they need to use to calculate that is huge right and then going on um to you know carry the one if it's a multiple digit addition question again that's where you see the problems and that's when accommodations can come in to really help support them and again that <laughs> drifts us off topic but that's where we see things like using a calculator can help the student because if they're having to show all of their work but they just don't have the working memory capacity to do the question then it's an appropriate um, accommodation depending on what you're asking them to do. I mean, if you're measuring their fact fluency, then it's not appropriate for them yeah. to use a calculator. But if you're seeing if they can do the question, well, if they've shown that they understand the concept of addition, but it takes them a long time to do it, they can do it correctly, we'll give them a calculator. No, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, I completely agree with that. Um, sort of like using read and write on Google for comprehension questions or sociology questions or psychology questions or whatever subject, social studies subject you want to look at, but yeah. not having them use it for reading lessons. Um, exactly, exactly. It's all about, and that's the whole thing with executive functions and any um, exceptionality, right? Make sure that what you're asking and marking them to do isn't asking them to use additional skills that are going to affect their grade, right? So if I'm just asking students whether they can answer questions about a passage that they read, then and I don't really care if they can read the like, yes, they can read, I assume that they can read the passage because it's at their grade level. But for the student that's not at the grade level, and you're not asking them can they actually read that passage? You want to know if they can take the information out of the package, then there's no reason why they can't listen to an audiobook. Yeah, I agree. I think I see this as the uh, like the principle of specificity. We want our instruction and our assessment and our tests to correspond with each other. Because when I say assessment and test, I mean what we're trying to assess has to also match the actual test itself. Um, I was gonna say though, I think it's uh I was thinking about chess instruction actually, because there's a lot of research showing that chess can improve learning results. Now, it's not like a high yield strategy, but it, there is a very statistically significant benefit that we can't just Strategy ignore. instruction, right? So you're, you're doing strategy instruction that's helping support the executive functioning development. And that's what a lot of these things do, right? So when you put kids in karate, it works on their inhibitory control, right? When you do word problems, you're working on their cognitive flexibility, especially when they're having to think outside of the box and use different approaches to solving a problem. Now, one thing to highlight here is when we were talking about students that may be on the spectrum, well, they can be very flexible when it comes to you know, science and math and come up with these genius solutions and thinking outside of the box. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships, it's not there, right? And then, um, you know, there can be things that people are really strong with for their working memory, like numbers. Yeah, I can remember a number, whatever. But if you give me a string of letters, I can't, right? Um, so there can be strengths and situations that are specific. And then, you know, again, we see kids with ADHD that have their zone, right? They can be disciplined, they can be uh, very focused and hyper-focused in something, like say their interest is playing the guitar and they can be hyper-vigilant, they can do the practice, but they're not able to take that skill and apply it to something that they don't have the motivation for, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I play guitar. Uh, and I did, I did learn while I was struggling with like, you know, uh, school, uh, and I would sit there for literally hours playing guitar. Although I used to, I used to have the TV playing in the background while I played guitar. But, 
but so that's again a tangent but the thing is that could have given you the distraction that you needed to focus on in the background so you could focus on the guitar as someone with a learning disability and ADHD I completely understand where you're coming from. I could do better homework if I had the background noise of the television or the radio. So that gave me one thing to focus the part of my brain that needed a distraction on. Then I could do in a quiet room because there were so many things around me that I could jump my focus from here to here to here. But again, that's not research, that's just personal experience. Yeah, I, so for me, I, I think it probably actually lowered my focus, but at the same time, um, I'm such uh, like, I often like watch TV, play video games. I will be chatting on my phone at the same time. And I just feel like my attention span just requires so much stimulation that like for me to do something for an extended period of time, I have to have multi, I have to be multitasking, but I'm, I'm a terrible example. Nobody should do what I do. Um, I'm going to ask, uh, what, what do you see as the most common mistakes teachers make when trying to help students with executive function difficulties? Uh, well, not considering what they're asking and the skills that are needed, right? Um, you, you can't put a blanket executive function and program and expect it to work on all students. It's like any intervention or any skill that you're teaching. You have to personalize and understand the strengths and weaknesses that the student is coming into the program and make sure that they're gonna benefit from what you're asking them to do and that they have the prerequisite skills, right? And this again, works with any intervention. You need to make sure that they have the skills that they need to do what they're at, you're asking them to do and use the strategies that they're asking them to use. So if they have, again, poor working memory and you're getting them to use an agenda and they have to write the assignment down, but you only give them a couple seconds to write it down, they're not going to be able to do that. And while it's a very good strategy of having the agenda to write it, you know, to have their assignment down, they don't have the skills to use it efficiently, right? So it's better that you give them the supports that they need given the activities and then you know, there are the students that have the photographic memory that don't need it, but you're trying to teach the strategy, right? So yeah. you can say, yes, I know, you know, typically they start using agendas and, you know, the intermediate grades where they're writing down homework and you need to realize that, yes, this is a very good strategy that we need to teach, but you need to realize that there are students that this is just going to be one of those basket weaving things um you know the, the fluff courses they don't need but it's still a skill that you want to instill in them so it's fine that you're asking to do that even though they don't need it but you need to be focusing on the kids that that is just too much to the end of their day right so you write it down on the post-it note for them and put it in or you write it down in their agenda you get one of their friends to write in their agenda you find a strategy that works for them to make sure that they know what to do right yeah basket weaving teachers everywhere are outreached right now yeah. um you know i i will say I, I feel like i've said something similar about behavioral students i've spent a lot of my time working with behavioral students and i find that you really have to individualize your your instructions your inventions your programming to those students because their needs are always unique and it's hard to give like that cookie cutter answer and Thinking that the cookie cutter answer works and applies to a student with behavioral needs, it's always wrong because it's, I've never had two behavioral students that were identical to each other, even if their motivations are similar. Well, and I, I think it's important. Yeah, I think it's important when you're working with those students that have high needs or need that support to really talk to them and include them in on the conversation. Uh, and especially as they get older, say, look, these are the skills that we want to work on. Which one do you want to work on first? And you make sure that it's developmentally appropriate, but it's likely something that they recognize in themselves and that they want to improve. Like they want to stop interrupting. They hate not knowing what to do next, right? So if there's a simple, and involve them in the solution, say, look, you know, for the past two weeks, you know, if it's been the past month, I've been telling you what to do. And then you come up to me because you can't. How do you think that we can solve that? Would it be better for me to write it on the board 
or have it on a post-it note that I can stick on your desk, right? Include them in the solution because there may have been something that has worked in the past that you're not aware of. And I mean, the huge pet peeve, again, it's, it's personal, but it's that assumption that just because it's worked for yourself or another student that has a similar issue doesn't mean it's going to be the best practice for them. And it may actually make it worse for them because it's tapping in one of their weaknesses that you're trying to use as a strength. You know, that's funny. I was just thinking of my number one pet peeve and you're like, you're just like my huge pet peeve. I was thinking my number one pet peeve in this is when students aren't invited into the IEP process or treated as um, vested interest parties, because I think very few kids actually don't care about how they do at school. Even the kids who are like, they, you think like they present that, I don't yeah. care attitude. They care. They, I've met I'm so few kids in my life who, who actually genuinely literally don't care. I think there's kids who feel very discouraged and give up, but that's not not caring. And uh, I think it's really important to invite them into that IEP process. Well, and the answers that they can come up with are like bizarre and something that you'd never think of, right? But they know themselves better than you to some extent. Of course. And, you know, it's important. And even the kid, I mean, the problem, again, another topic, but the individual has to be ready for it. And the parents have to be willing to let the individual know about the situation. And that's a, a huge problem that I think we're dealing with less and less as uh, we move forward in our understanding. But it used to be that parents, oh no, they can't know that. They don't know they have autism. They don't know they have ADHD. They don't know this, they don't know that. And that's doing a huge disservice and not helping them become self-aware. But again, another topic. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know actually, I think, I have to say, as someone who had ADHD, uh, I don't know if it benefited me knowing I had ADHD. I, I, I feel like in some ways it was a disservice to me personally. Um, so maybe you probably, you and I probably disagree on that a little. I'm not saying that no one should ever tell the kids, but I think it, it's really important how the kid is told because I feel like there is the danger of a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially yeah. with um, a learning disability. I was, I was falsely told I had a learning disability as a kid too, which I don't actually, um, cause I don't have any of the, the, the symptoms of one or the, I don't meet the criteria. Um, my There's parents this diagnosis, right? Yeah. Well, my parents told me I had a learning disability in French. So I actually, I was really good at English and they told me I had a learning disability in French. So I used to just read French books under my desk during French classes. Like, well, I can't learn French. My parents told me I was, I was, I was stupid in French. So I just didn't. You know, and of, of course, obviously, I, now I'm studying French. And actually, my vocabulary in French is fairly decent. I know over 20,000 words. Um, and uh, <laughs> the idea, though, that like you just think about it logically, there's no way neurologically a brain can be wired for one language and not for another. I really don't believe that personally. Um, so I, I just think I'm not saying that no one should ever tell a kid. I just feel like how you tell the kid and how you phrase the conversation oh, yeah, yeah. That is really tricky and challenging actually. Well, and it, and it shouldn't be forced and it should be done when the student is ready and it's not something, but it, it all depends on how it's done and how the explanation is. And, but it, it's at that self-discovery and I've worked with a lot of adults um, that didn't know about their ADHD or their learning disability. And they found out as an adult and it just caused so much, you know, understanding and relief to say, Oh, I wasn't stupid. There was a reason for this and having that self-discovery process. So it's all about making sure that it's done correctly with the right information and not used as an excuse. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I think hundred percent. I just, I always do. I have to admit, I, and I don't think this is necessarily borne out in the literature. If you look like, uh, since we've adopted special education movements, actually education results have increased, but I, I do always have that, like that tinge of nervousness around that topic of specifically, um, telling the students the diagnosis. Even I, I read a study once where, um, 
uh, teachers sometimes showed negative results when they found the diagnosis, they marked the kid harder because in their mind, learning disability meant stupid for lack of a better term. Um, and I've actually heard teachers say things. I'm not going to say any teacher in specific, but I've heard teachers say over the years, like, oh, you can't give that student to have a mark. They're on an IEP. <laughs> Uh, and it's, it's that type of thing. I just, I worry that the education that needs to coincide with it isn't where it needs to be. Well, and the bias, I know in, in my own personal experience, I went to, uh, a private school in high school. And when, uh, one of the teachers found out that I was accepted into the school, even though I had dyslexia, they were very angry and said that I didn't deserve to be there. And then by the time that I, I finished, I was one of those three students. Yeah. No, I, I also, I also felt like that too, let's be honest. I felt like uh, teachers felt marked me harder after they found out I had a diagnosis of ADD than before. And maybe that was like my false childhood yeah. um, perceptions, but I don't know. Um, we've gone super off tangent here though. Uh, and I've actually, I've done the interview. So I'm sorry that I, I question your position there a little. Uh, and I'm not really questioning. I'm sure that you're right 90% of the time. It's that 10% of the time that just makes me nervous. Yeah, it has to be done very carefully and in the right environment with the right information. Yeah. Right, and understanding where the child is at and how it's gonna be. I'm not saying every student, as soon as you get the diagnosis, needs to hear it. I'm saying it needs to be done carefully in the right information environment with the right information and realize who's going to use that information and how they're going to use it. I mean, I've, I've heard of cases where they've, a family had found out, an immigrant family had found out that their child had a learning disability and the child was sent home to have it beaten out of them. Oh my gosh. That's so <laughs> horrific. Yeah. This was like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, probably now. Um, but it, it all depends on the perception, right? And we've come a long way in a relatively short amount of time in our understanding and acceptance of neurodiversities, right? For sure, we have eight um, years. And I just think that having the understanding and the information available to you about how you work and how to best support yourself and make sure that you're gonna succeed is more advantageous. Yeah, I think- Than not questions. That's for sure. I think one of my biggest concerns is actually not really the students or the parents, it's the, the teachers in part, because I think, I think every teacher thinks they know what a learning disability is, but I think if you ask the 90% of teachers to define a learning disability, the definition that we give you would be wrong. Um, so, for me, that's very concerning when telling teacher, your kid in this class has a learning disability because they don't know what that means and they think they know what it means. And I think that's a dangerous combo when people think they know something and don't. And I'd, I'd really love to see greater education about just even the terminology so that more teachers are fully aware of what those words mean um, when they read them in the classroom. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, anyways, uh, sorry for taking us so far off topic, both That's listeners fine. and Dr. Uh, Garforth. Um, and until next time, folks, I, I will say, by the way, if you want to learn more about this topic, um, Dr. Garforth has a fantastic course that she's offering on her website, and I will leave the link to her website um, below this episode, um, just on executive functioning. And I am fairly certain it's far more than the hour we've spent on talking about it Um uh, here. So if you want to know more about this in greater detail, I definitely think that's a resource you should check out. That's it for now, folks. Until next time.